Hey everyone, thank you for joining me for episode 48 of the Mark Geis Show. So I, to, in this episode today, I'm going to follow through on my promise I've made in my last couple of episodes. I pushed it off a little bit because I had more pressing things to talk about with the bombing in Syria and the United flight issue. So I wanted to handle that first while it was still fresh in people's minds, but still had this episode lined up, the content lined up. So I want to follow through on that tonight. And what I want to talk about is the book Democracy in America, which was written back in 1835 or published in 1835 by Alexis de Tocqueville, a Frenchman, a young Frenchman uh, who had gone in 1831 to the United States. He was commissioned to study the prison system in the United States with a colleague, and he was in the United States for nine months, took notes on virtually every aspect of American life, and then wrote a book about it, wrote a book about how democracy in the United States at that time really could serve as a sort of looking glass into the future for people in Europe because he saw democracy gradually creeping more and more into European institutions. And he figured that what was going on in the United States, which was already further along on this path, you could use that and say, this is probably what Europe will look like, or Europe will look more like this in the future when our institutions are more democratic. And I think the book is is great. It's not everybody's going to agree with everything he says, of course, because obviously we all have different opinions and different principles, and I'm not sure how to exactly characterize him on the political spectrum, but I think regardless of where you are on the political spectrum today, you can find something in this book that's valuable to you. And what I want to do in this episode, I took seven quotes that I had po- I'd pointed out throughout the book that I had put an arrow next to and written down. And I thought all were either prescient or, you know, really made a great point or really embodied what de Tocqueville was trying to say in this entire book. And I'd seen this book referenced a lot in other works and in a pretty wide ranging set of works because it has so much information on that time in American history. And it's really the seminal work on early 1800s pre-Civil War United States and how things worked because it's just it's such an expansive study really and it's shocking that he was able to do this in a nine month span of time I know he traveled all along the country or all around the country and obviously took extensive notes and talked to a lot of people but to get this kind of information in nine months is pretty surprising and I think he was able to connect the dots like very few people could and to see things that were going to happen in the future. And I don't think that all of his predictions came true. And I'm going to focus more on the ones that did become, that that did end up being true, that did end up coming to fruition, because that's obviously more fun to talk about. But I think for the most part, he, he was quite accurate. And of course, we're all going to make mistakes if we're trying to predict what's happening 100 plus years down the down the road. We're all going to make some mistakes. And probably his biggest mistake that I saw when reading this was he doubted that the United States would ever be able to produce fantastic art forms, that the United States would never become a hub of the art world, that it would always be centered in Europe, basically. I think that's the implication. I don't think he ever said that necessarily, that it would always be in Europe. But he figured that because the people of the United States were so equal relative to the people of Europe, and because they were much more focused on basically making money, basically on, on commercial ventures and on improving their standards of living, that they were always going to value, basically value 
the practicality of a given good rather than its its worthiness in terms of art. So I think he was he was completely wrong on that point because obviously the United States has become the home of, of many famous authors, many famous artists, and the United States is one of the hubs of the art world today. But I don't want to focus on those areas where what he said didn't come true because it's just it's not as fun to talk about and it's not as valuable. So like I said, I have seven quotes. I'm going to read them. I apologize because obviously he was he lived in the 1800s. I don't have audio of him saying these things, so I can't use that to cut up my own voice. So it's going to be continually me reading these quotes. And hopefully I do a good job with inflection and everything to get this across. But I understand listening to long quotes can be difficult sometimes. So like I said, I apologize in advance, but I'm going to do the best I can here. And I'm not sure really what other way there is for me to do this. So here's quote number one that I picked out. Quote, society will develop a new kind of servitude which covers the surface of society with a network of complicated rules through which the most original minds and the most energetic characters cannot penetrate. It does not tyrannize, but it compresses, enervates, extinguishes, and stupefies a people, till each nation is reduced to nothing better than a flock of timid and industrious animals, of which the government is the shepherd. So this is where he was talking about the the dangers of democracy. He talks about many of the positives that, that came out of democracy. Obviously, I was end quote there. Uh, so he talked about many of the positives that came out of democracy. I talked about the quality of the people, how the standards of living of the average person were higher in his estimation than in Europe. There was far less inequality between the upper classes and the lower classes, but he saw a danger in democracy. And I, I've talked about the dangers of democracy many times on this podcast, the dangers of majority rule. Uh, he saw a greater centralization and a greater servitude of the people to the government. And that's what he's saying in this quote. That, I th- that he thinks the natural course of events in a democratic society, if there aren't restrictions placed on, on that democratic society, are for this, for this kind of weak, tyrannical um, expression. So he's talking about compression, enervating, extinguishing, stupefying people. It's, it, it's not a tyranny. It's, it's not a, a tyranny in terms of a powerful government smashing you into submission, but it's every corner that you turn, there's a rule there and there's, there's always a a hoop to jump through. And that's what he's talking about here. And one of the things that, that wasn't present yet in the United States when de Tocqueville was there were all these rules. Many of the functions that we think of as, as being served by government were served by private institutions and the government didn't have its claws in every aspect of human life. But today, it is. I try to go through the day and look at every single thing that you do. The government has its mitts on in some way. Everything that you buy is taxed. And of course, with those taxes come, come strings attached to the merchants that are selling those goods or services to you. Basically, every service that you buy, there are licensing requirements for those people to jump through in order to sell you those services. If you run a business every day, you're doing something, whether it's bookkeeping or keeping track of taxes or, like I said before, licensing or any of a number of things or employing people. You've got to go through the routinized structure that's set forth by government in order to hire people. 
government has has gotten its way into every aspect of human life. And that's what he's saying here, that when that happens, people become timid and industrious animals, and the government becomes the shepherd. And I think that that has happened in the United States. And when you're a timid and industrious animal, you look to your master, you look to your shepherd for direction all the time. And if you were feeling any sort of pain or weakness, you expect that the shepherd is going to be there to step in for you to, to make things better. And as I've talked about on this podcast, I, I don't even know how many times, the government is not effective at doing that. So th- that's one of the fundamental weaknesses of democracy that de Tocqueville, that, that, that de Tocqueville talks about in this book. And I think that it really has come true in the United States that he was very prescient in terms of what democracy would turn into. So next I'll read quote number two. This is a longer one, so I apologize in advance. I'm going to do a lot of apologizing on this one. But here it is. Quote, what good does it do me, after all, if an ever-watchful authority keeps an eye out to ensure that my pleasures will be tranquil and races ahead of me to ward off all danger, sparing me the need even to think about such things, if that authority, even as it removes the smallest thorns from my path, is also absolute master of my liberty and my life? If it monopolizes vitality and existence to such a degree that when it languishes, everything around it must also languish. When it sleeps, everything else must sleep. And when it dies, everything must also perish. There are some nations in Europe whose inhabitants think of themselves, in a sense, as colonists, indifferent to the fate of the place they live in. The greatest changes occur in their country without their cooperation. They are not even aware of precisely what has taken place. They suspect it. They have heard of of the event by chance. More than that, they are unconcerned with the fortunes of their village, the safety of their streets, the fate of their church and its vestry. They think that such things have nothing to do with them, that they belong to a powerful stranger called the government. They enjoy these goods as tenants, without a sense of ownership, and never give a thought to how they might be improved. They are so divorced from their own interests that even when their own security and that of their children is finally compromised, they do not seek to avert the danger themselves, but cross their arms and wait for the nation as a whole to come to their aid. Yet as utterly as they sacrifice their own free will, they are no fonder of obedience than anyone else. They submit, it is true, to the whims of a clerk, but no sooner is force removed than they are glad to defy the law as a defeated enemy. Thus one finds them ever wavering between servitude and license." When a nation has reached this point, it must either change its laws and mores or perish, for the well of public virtue has run dry. In such a place, one no longer finds citizens, but only subjects. End quote. So I think that one was great. It was worth reading despite being so long because I think this, again, describes what has happened. It's, it's very much related to that first quote. They came from similar places of the book. It's a a long rant kind of on what happens to people when the government is pervasive throughout your entire lives. But this is what is happening today in the United States. Basically, people think that people think that the government is going to be there to solve poverty. They think that because I'm paying taxes, because this money is being taken from me and being redistributed to the poor, to the needy or whatever, that I don't need to do any charitable work myself. I don't need to donate any of my money to charity because the government's going to handle it. And then it works for all classes of society. So that would be kind of the, I think the license that somebody in the, the middle or upper classes may take. But then it also works for people in, in the lower classes. 
you know, rather than turning to their fellow citizen for help or trying to figure out a voluntary way to, to get the help of their fellow citizens, they think that they can petition the government to solve a particular need. And of course, that requires taking money from other people to solve this need for them. And the government is notoriously unable to, to really fulfill these needs well. We've seen that time and time again, the intentions of government programs tend not to actually match the results. The results tend to not live up to these lofty expectations. So I think this quote is is fantastic. Really, you could put this today, somebody could say this today, and I think that that they would say, wow, who, who wrote that? What, what columnist wrote that? It, it doesn't sound like it came from 1830 because that is what has happened in the United States. The United States today looks much more like Europe because Europe at that time, the government was pervasive in everyday life. And in the United States, it was not. And de Tocqueville saw the weaknesses of that in Europe, just like he talked about the strengths and weaknesses of democracy in the United States. He also talked about the strengths and weaknesses of aristocracy in Europe. And one of the issues with this combination of aristocracy and monarchy was that government became pervasive everywhere and bureaucracy ran rampant. And I think you see that today in the United States. People still want to think that the United States is fundamentally different from Europe. You know, maybe we're in different stages of the life cycle, but things are not very different. Uh, So I needed to read that one despite being so long. So thank you for bearing with me on that one. Next, I'll read quote number three. Quote, it is above all in the present democratic age that the true friends of liberty and human grandeur must remain constantly vigilant and ready, ready to prevent the social power from lightly sacrificing the particular rights of a few individuals to the general execution of its designs. In such times, there is no citizen so obscure that it is not very dangerous to allow him to be oppressed. And there are no individual rights so unimportant that they can be sacrificed to arbitrariness and impunity. End quote. This one, once again, I think is very important today because in political discourse, I think different individuals are treated differently. You have certain classes that are favored that I think you cannot criticize and their rights are held as being above others because of whether it's because of, of past oppression or whether it's because of political correctness or of a combination of both things. People do believe that it's right to sacrifice the rights of some in order to satisfy those more politically favored groups. And I think one great instance of this, what comes to mind when I read this, is when you're talking about the right of business owners to to refuse to serve particular customers. Basically, the customers are seen as as the politically favored group and the business owners can be vilified. So that, this came up a lot in political discourse in the 2016 election, especially in the Libertarian Party debates. But talking about uh, baking a cake, can you force a cake maker to bake a cake for a gay couple? Even if the person is completely against gay marriage, even if the, the cake maker is completely against gay marriage and it goes against his or her religion and against every fiber of his or her being should they be forced to sell this cake to this gay couple? And I think a lot of people out there would say, would either say yes or no, based on if you have people who who believe in gay marriage, they would say yes. And then if you have people who believe, you know, believe in, in religion, in religion playing a role in our, in our society, they would probably say 
no, you shouldn't force the, the cake maker to bake a cake. But they make it all about that one particular issue. I think it's much more about can you be forced to sell your labor to somebody else against your will. And that's really that's really what it comes down to. If you say that a cake maker must bake a cake for anybody that walks in the door, then no matter who it is, then how is that different from me as an employee? If I believe that my boss is reprehensible for whatever reason, why can't I leave that job and refuse to sell my labor to that person, to that company that also employs my boss, who I who I cannot stand for whatever reason. And I think it can be for whatever reason, you have the right to leave as an employee. But how does that become different when all of a sudden, instead of selling your labor directly to an employer, when you are the employer, how do you all of a sudden lose that right? Who do I sell my labor to? Because that, that's what you're doing as a business owner to a customer. You're selling your labor to this customer. This customer is paying you a certain amount in, in, res- in response for your labor that you have used to turn raw materials into a given good or your skills into a given service. But for whatever reason, and I shouldn't say for whatever reason because it's very predictable, but the business owner is seen as basically providing a public service. So they forfeit that right for whatever reason. But I think it's a very slippery slope when you start talking in these terms and the ability of of much of the American populace to sacrifice the rights of politically unpopular groups really leads you down the slippery slope in, in a lot of different ways. So I think this quote is great because it shows the danger of that and it shows how you can use the logic once once the rights of a, of a particularly unpopular group, once those are sacrificed, you can use that logic now to start targeting anybody else. And eventually it can be used to undermine the rights of the entire society if it, if it reaches that point. W- one of my favorite books out there is by Walter Block, and I believe you can get this for free through the Mises Institute, through the, uh, through the Ludwig von Mises Institute. And I'll post a link to it if that's true in the suggested readings portion of the uh, of, of the website post for this podcast. But he goes through all these different unpopular groups and why we should be praising these unpopular groups or why he defends them rather than vilifying them. And these are groups that most of us are taught to just intuitively despise. Uh, but I think in, some of them are middlemen. I remember one, speculators. Uh, there are there are a lot. Uh, I think pimps is one. Some of them you read the you read the chapter title and you're surprised. Okay, how is he really going to defend this here? But I think it's it's an incredible book and it's it, it goes hand in hand with this quote because he talks about why. If we really want to apply these rights, if we really, if we really want these politically popular groups to have these rights, we need to be consistent, and they need to be given to all. And just because people have a particular occupation does not mean they forfeit those rights that the rest of us enjoy. So I won't discuss that any further. But uh, defending the undefendable, one of my favorite books, highly recommended. Quote number four. Quote. Our contemporaries are constantly racked by two warring passions. They feel the need to be led and the desire to remain free. Unable to destroy either of these contrary instincts, they seek to satisfy both at once. They imagine a single omnipotent tutelary power, but one that is elected by the citizens. They combine centralization with popular sovereignty. This gives them some respite. 
They console themselves for being treated as wards by imagining that they have chosen their own protectors. Each individual allows himself to be clapped in chains because the other end of the chain is held not by a man or a class, but by the people themselves, end quote. So this one I thought was important, and uh, the reason why I underlined it was because I think this is what has happened in the United States today. We believe that we are in charge, that the people are in charge of our government, so we really can't resist or we can't criticize what's happening because, hey, you have your vote, you made your voice heard in the democratic process, and this is what was chosen. You need to respond to the will of the people. And I agree with the Tocqueville here that this is trying to find a middle ground that I'm not sure is possible. That if you both want to be led by uh, by a strong force, yet you also want to remain free, I think this is the type of thing that ends up happening. There ends up being the illusion of freedom in many aspects, and the most effective way for the government to, to remain very powerful is to give the people the ability democratically to choose their leaders, even if it ends up not affecting policy all that much. But you can say to the people that you chose us, you chose your leaders, these are, these are the policies that were chosen by the people at large, so you really can't criticize them. And you see this damned if you do, damned if you don't kind of thing all the time because there's a school of thought saying that voting is an irrational act and a lot of people don't vote for that reason. And then people will say, well, if you don't vote, then, you know, you can't complain because you didn't make your voice heard through the system. So you can't complain. But then if people do vote and things don't go the way that that person wants and they have somebody at the helm, somebody exerting control over their lives that they don't agree with whatsoever, then those same people will say, well, you know, you, you voted and you took, you took part in the system and this is what the people chose. So you just got to suck it up and live with it or move elsewhere. That's what you hear all the time. So you're damned if you do, damned if you don't with voting and people use this kind of rationale to defend that position. Uh, and I think De Tocqueville was ahead of his time in terms of recognizing that democratic institutions that giving the people to, giving the people the power to elect their representatives is the best way for governments to stay powerful and for people to stay in power for career politicians to stay in power he doesn't say that directly uh, but i think you can follow it logically from what he says in this book next quote quote number five Quote, there are at this present time two great nations in the world, which started from different points, but seem to tend toward the same end. I allude to the Russians and the Americans. Both of them have grown up unnoticed, and whilst the attention of mankind was directed elsewhere, they have suddenly placed themselves in the front rank among the nations, and the world learned their existence and their greatness at almost the same time. All other nations seem to have nearly reached their natural limits, and they have only to maintain their power, but these are still in the act of growth. All the others have stopped or continue to advance with extreme difficulty. These alone are proceeding with ease and celerity along a path to which no limit can be perceived. The American struggles against the obstacles which nature opposes to him. The adversaries of the Russian are men. The former combats the wilderness and savage life. The latter, civilization with all its arms. The conquests of the American are therefore gained with the plowshare, those of the Russian by the sword. The Anglo-American relies upon personal interest to accomplish his ends and gives free scope to the unguided strength and common sense of the people. The Russian centers all the authority of society in a single arm. The principal instrument of the power is freedom, of the latter, servitude. 
Their starting point is different, and their courses are not the same, yet each of them seems marked out by the will of heaven to sway the destinies of half the globe. End quote. And how prescient is that quote? Because you look at what happened in the 20th century and how really two of the societies playing a huge role in what happened in geopolitical affairs are the United States and Russia. And of course, Europe was was greatly involved too. Like he said in that quote, they still would remain powerful, still would exert an influence, but that in the next or in the coming times, America and Russia, which most people were ignoring at the time, which had no influence at the time in the 1830s, that they would eventually be right there with the powerful nations of the world. And you can talk about both Russia and the United States being involved in the world wars, but you can also take this further to the Cold War and how that really was the final standoff that he's talking about here, how they're destined to, to come together to sway half the globe and that the Cold War was that standoff that really was those two meeting. And the United States won that meeting. But not only is his, is his prediction that those two countries would eventually face off, if you will, but really the character of those two countries, I think also it's kind of the, if you want to simplify it, the capitalism versus communism meeting. And the, the democratic institutions of the United States versus the dictatorship in Russia or the the single man leadership of Russia that's exactly what he says in this quote and that's what ended up happening and that's you know that was the face off that that happened between these two countries so i figured i had to throw that in there one of the most prescient portions of this entire book is when he's talking about those two countries and it's not a throw i wouldn't say it's a throwaway but it's kind of at the end of a longer section where he's talking about the globe but it, it may turn out to be the most prescient part of this entire book. So next quote, I'll move on to quote six. Quote, in examining the division of powers as established by the federal constitution, remarking on the one hand the portion of sovereignty which has been reserved to the several states, and on the other, the share of power which has been given to the union, it is evident that the federal legislators entertained very clear and accurate notions respecting the centralization of government. The United States formed not only a republic, but a confederation, yet the national authority is more centralized there than it was in several of the absolute monarchies of Europe, end quote. And I think this is prescient. He doesn't make this, this jump necessarily, but he talks about the national government of the United States, the federal government of the United States being very centralized in Washington, D.C. And part of that was the, was the structure where the states kind of ran their own affairs and then D.C., ran its own affairs. So the federal power was all centralized in DC, whereas in other countries you had more of a provincial structure where the federal government was the primary authority everywhere. So you had it spread out over the entire country. Uh, but I think that the dangers in what happened there, and once the federal government started to accumulate more and more power, first of all, because it was centralized, it was able to overwhelm the states that much more easily. And I think that de Tocqueville saw this that, this, that this this was a danger of happening, that the overall decentralization that he saw during this time where government wasn't, you know, wasn't in the affairs of every American, it wasn't a, you know, it wasn't a stable balance there, that it was a perilous balance and that if things went too far in that direction of, of the federal government gaining too much authority, that eventually 
it could overrun the affairs basically that that basically it could it could have its tentacles in every town across the entire country so he talks about this for a while i pulled out that i thought that was the best summation but he talks about and it's interesting when he he spends so much of this book discussing the power of private institutions in the united states and how government isn't everywhere and how he's so fascinated by the ability of people in the United States to form clubs and organizations and whether it's through church or whether it's through the community, he's just enamored by this time and time again, because it's so different from Europe. These are functions that are typically performed by the government in Europe, but they're not performed by the government in the United States. But he still says, despite saying all those things that the government of the United States is far more centralized than the governments of Europe. So I think he saw the dangers here, and you you mix that structure with democracy that we could be where we are today, and that is with the federal government overwhelming the state governments and by far being the most important governmental force in most of our lives in the United States. So quote number seven, this is the last one that I specifically picked out, and this one has to do with slavery. So quote, if I were called upon to predict the future... I should say that the abolition of slavery in the South will, in the common course of things, increase the repugnance of the white population for the blacks. I base this opinion upon the analogous observation I have already made in the North. I have remarked that the white inhabitants of the North avoid the Negroes with increasing care in proportion as the legal barriers of separation are removed by legislature. And why should not the same result take place in the South? In the North, the whites are deterred from intermingling with the blacks by an imaginary danger. In the South, where the danger would be real... I cannot, I cannot believe that the fear would be less. So what he's saying, and this is one of many quotes I could have pulled. He's saying that he, he believes that, that the abolition of slavery is inevitable in the United States. He thinks it's irreconcilable with basically the, the prevailing ethos in the United States and irreconcilable with the Constitution. But then... Once that happens, so once slavery is ended in the South, in his words, he believes that the that the relations between whites and blacks in the South will be so strained that the black that the whites will treat the blacks worse than they currently do because they see a sort of danger from the blacks now having closer to equal rights with them. And that is what happened after slavery. You saw government put into place certain restrictions on blacks being able to move freely and to be able to use the services that white people used. And you saw racial ads. You you can kind of discuss whether it's the chicken or the egg there, you know, whether those policies caused whites to become that much more racist against blacks in the South or whether the racism in in society as a whole then caused government to erect those barriers to blacks, but either way, his his quote is very prescient here. So those are the seven quotes that I had picked out for this episode here as I was reading, and there are others that easily could have made this list. I could have extended it longer, but I was trying to keep my podcast under that forty minute, you know, that thirty to forty minute range is my ideal range. And I really would, I'd, I'd like to stress this again. I really would recommend reading Democracy in America, or at least an abridged version. I'm sure there are a lot available out there. I read a paperback version. It was the Signet Classics abridged version, which was 
I believe like 350 to 400 pages long, something like that. And it wasn't as long as the entire volume as the, as the entire work. Uh, so maybe finding in a, in a bridge version would be better for those that don't want to read a, an 800 or 900 page book or whatever the total democracy in America work would be. But I think this is important. I think it's the best work I've seen so far on early 19th century America. And I think it's important to look at the, at the process by which we've come from early America to that period of time America was developing to the civil war, you know, to the, to the industrial revolution and the world wars and so on and so forth until today. I think that this is going to be a blueprint that future generations talk about in their history classes, just like people today compare the United States to Rome, the fall of Rome. A lot of people who who believe that the United States is destined for failure and that the United States is no longer going to be the big dog on the world stage that much longer. And we talk about Rome and and the progression of Rome and how it spread itself too thin. I think people will be talking about the United States much the same way. And democracy in America, I think, will continue to be a work that's referenced at the very least. Maybe it will become more and more difficult to read because the English language is constantly evolving. But I think right now, it's it's written in pretty simple language. It's easy to understand. It's not, easy, it's not as easy as re- reading something that's written by a by a good author of today. Certainly not, but I think it's it's pretty easy to read. The translation that I read was quite good, and I don't think people would struggle too much. You're not sitting there trying to trying to sludge through each page and each chapter, finally trying to get to the end, looking to the end of the book, trying to see how many pages do I have left here. I don't think it's that kind of book. I think it's interesting. I think, the like I said, the prose is, is relatively simple. And very interesting as well. Certain parts are more interesting than others, just like any other book. And depending on what you find most interesting about society, you may find certain parts uh, more interesting than, than others. But I think that his overarching points about American life and about how equal the American people were in both the strengths and weaknesses of that equality, I think that can tell us a lot about, about early America. And it can show you how far we've come. But I think also you can still see in today's United States remnants of what he was talking about in this book. You can still see remnants of a, a flattening of the lower classes and the upper classes. I don't really think there's, there's that much difference in terms of interactions. There, there, there are enough cultural things that are the same across the board that you still can interact with somebody of an upper class. It's not a complete aristocracy. Now, I think we're going further in that direction. And Charles Murray has talked about this quite a bit. If, you, if you've if you ever read Bell Curve by Charles Murray uh, or any of his other works, really, he, he kind of weaves us into to a lot of his works, but talking about how the upper classes have kind of formed their own separated, stratified class from the rest of society where... They have their own interests. And a lot of this, he says, is that we become more and more meritocratic. So our our institutions of higher learning, the, the Ivy League schools in particular, <clears throat> have gotten better and better at sorting out high IQ, you know, very talented students to go to these schools. When they meet each other there, they marry each other, they then go live in high-income communities among people who are very similar to themselves. 
and this is this cognitive sorting, which is what he calls it, is very different from in the past. You tended to live near where you grew up and live amongst the same people that you grew up with. And if you happen to be one of the smartest people in your town, then maybe it just meant you were one of the most successful people in your town. But now these Ivy League schools are very, very good at going out and attracting people from all across the country. If you're the smartest person in you know, Fargo, North Dakota, a hundred years ago, you would not have been going to one of these institutions of higher learning. You would have been going to an institution here. You would have been staying in North Dakota and you probably would have been very successful where you were, but you wouldn't have gone to one, to these, one of these institutions far away and then sorted into one of these high income neighborhoods elsewhere. You wouldn't have been living in Manhattan or in San Francisco or something like that. But today, that becomes much more the norm. Uh, so that's starting to happen. I think we're losing more and more of that equality every year. And we're getting obviously further away. As you get further away in terms of time from when democracy in America was written, there are going to be fewer similarities. But I think it's interesting for anybody that, that likes history and that's interested in how the United States has changed from when it was instituted, when it was founded, to today. So that's where I'll end it, I think. Thank you so much for listening. I hope this this episode was, was somewhat interesting for you. I, I found the book interesting, and I was hoping to sway some people to read it. And I think there are a lot of conversations that can be sparked from this book. So have a fantastic week, and I will talk to you again soon. Thank you. Thank you.